This past Sunday, Marilee and I took in the Cardinals and Cincinnati Reds game at Bush Stadium. And if you are a Cardinals fan, you know it was a terrible game. Little to cheer about. An 8 to nothing loss for the Redbirds. And a long day in the unseasonably warm sunshine of early April. I did take one thing away from the afternoon. My first sunburn of 2017. Didn't take much with my uh, fair complexion. Yes, I know what you're thinking. Well, you should have brought sunscreen. Yeah, I know that. I've thought about that about the fourth inning. Anyway, the day wasn't totally wasted. We left Bush Stadium and we went to see the Blues play later that night against the Avalanche with the Blues winning 3-2. to two. They, of course, are bound for the Stanley Cup playoffs. And thanks to our friends Brian and Sheila for the invitation and the tickets to a day and a night of St. Louis sports. But back to the Cardinals and Reds game, as I was sitting in the stands there eating my peanuts and enjoying a cold, refreshing beer, I thought, wow, here it is, a Sunday afternoon, I'm drinking this cold one, and isn't it coincidental that it would be this week when we're here talking about beer and baseball? And I happened to go to a game that features the two teams that were the first to buck the National League's ban on Sunday games and beer sales. They started the American Association and changed baseball from a dying game to a national obsession. And it all really changed in 1882 and 1883, the first two seasons of the beer and whiskey circuit. Serendipity, huh? Oh, and that's why I'm a day late getting the podcast out to you this week. Oh, well. We're here now. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with, this one time we were eating a salad, this is history, the story of alcohol. And Tony Rehagen, I took your advice. I got some better lager. I got some Kugel's Canoe Paddler here, and this is pretty good beer. Mm. I like Lineys. I always have. It's one of my favorites when I go up to Minnesota, go up to the Boundary Waters. I always like to have a few Lining Kugels. Um, if you haven't listened to last week, that's episode number 20. You should do that before listening to the rest of this, or you're going to be lost and not know where you're at. Now, first, I have kind of a correction from last week's podcast. I mentioned that the current system of scheduling in baseball, where a team would play two, three-game series each week, dated from the creation of the American Association in 1882. And while that was the ideal at the time, it certainly wasn't always possible, given the limitations of railroad travel in the 19th century and the desire of team owners to limit road trips to as few as possible a year, and it made it necessary to pack in as many games as they could, including four-game series and make-up games because of wet weather at times when infields back then were just mud holes waiting to happen, really. And there was always the looming threat of darkness in the era before night games and reliable electric lighting. Uh, Thomas Edison didn't invent the incandescent bulb he, just two years earlier than the American Association was created. And 
A lot of weekday games were scheduled for 3 and 4 o'clock starts to get as many spectators as possible when they would be getting off work if they could squeeze a game in before they went home. Anyway, um, well, that just made the ideal of scheduling two complete series every week problematic. The one thing that the teams of the American Association wanted to make certain was that they always had games scheduled on Saturday and Sunday as those were the days when you would get the biggest draw at the gate. Now, with a schedule of 76 games in 1882, 38 at home and 38 on the road, each team over five-month season, beginning in early May and ending in early September, that's a span of about 120 days, it quickly becomes apparent that uh, there are a lot of limitations that the teams encountered with effective scheduling because of travel, weather, etc., etc. Now, besides scheduling concerns, there were some other major differences in the style of baseball played by both the National League and the American Association when they each opened their league play in May of 1882. First, the pitchers didn't throw from a mound or a rubber. They pitched from a square, which was on flat ground. It was called the pitcher's box. And every once in a while, you will hear announcers today, when a line drives hit back up the middle, right past the pitcher, they'll say he hit it back through the box, and that goes back to this time. Now, this box, it measured four and a half feet wide by five foot in length. It was marked out on the field with the back line measuring 55 feet six inches from home plate. Now, today... The pitching rubber on the mound is 60 feet, 6 inches from home plate. Anyway, back then, the pitcher could start his delivery with his back foot anywhere within a foot of the back line. And also, the pitcher had to release the ball from a point below his shoulder. And many pitchers, they had developed this technique to get on top of the delivery, so they fudged the rules a little bit. Now, the ball itself, when it was new, it was just as hard as the, bells, the baseballs are today, but they didn't travel as far or jump off the bat like today's ball, mainly because the ball at that time had a hard rubber center, whereas today the center is made of cork, and the string around the center back then wasn't wound as tight as it is today. Now, also, the same ball would be used through the entire game if possible. Even if it was hit into the stands, the fans would throw it back onto the field, and by the end of the game, the ball was usually a mush ball. It was really mushy, lopsided, covered with tobacco juice, pine tar, and it would be all scratched up, as it was at that time completely legal to put a foreign substance on the ball or to mar it in a manner that allowed the pitcher to more easily throw breaking balls. By 1882, the batter got only three strikes, just as in the modern game, although years before it had been many more. And that was unless the third strike was a foul ball. It's the same rules as today. But it took six balls rather than four to get a base on balls. However, if the batter was hit by a pitch, regardless of the intent on the pitcher's part, it was just a ball and the batter did not get his base. And pitchers used this to their advantage, many of whom intimidated batters relentlessly with fastballs up and in near their chins which was considered fair play at the time, as the opposing pitcher could do the same to your team. Now, a premium was put on speed with base running than it was with power when it came to hitting. Most home runs were inside the park. 
1882, the Pittsburgh Alleghenies, they later would become the Pirates, led the American Association with 18 total home runs and 59 total triples by the entire team. Stolen bases as we know them were not kept as a statistic at the time. The runner got a stolen base then every time he advanced a base on another player's hit. And that rule wasn't changed to the current definition until 1898. Now, players, for the most part, had not yet adopted using glove except some catchers and first basemen. And some catchers, they would wear two gloves, but the gloves of the day were little more than padded work gloves. A decade earlier, catchers had begun to wear masks, which they called bird cages. And although the single umpire in each game did not wear a mask because it was thought that it impeded his vision. Now, broken and split fingers were the most common injury among players in the bare hand era, but rarely would a man leave the game with such a minor injury. And if a player was able to play in the field, but he had a a sore leg that slowed him down but didn't stop him from being ambulatory, if he got permission from the opposing manager, a courtesy runner could run for him from home to first when he hit the ball. Teams consisted of nine players, just as they do now, and in basically the same positions that they play in today. Now, playing a first base changed during this area, and more on that in a bit, but usually, here's the strange thing, only 11 players would suit up for the game. There would be the nine in the field, there'd be an extra utility player, and an extra pitcher. Now, players didn't come out of the game unless they were so badly injured they could no longer walk or play, and pitchers were expected to go the entire game regardless. The teams typically carried only two pitchers on the roster, maybe three, and if a player or pitcher was injured and he couldn't play, he didn't get paid, and the manager or owner would start scouring the minor leagues or or amateur ball to find a replacement. Now, how much did players make at this time? Well, star players in the 1880s could make as much as $400 a month during the months they played, that is. And if a season was four or five months long, they could make as much as $2,000. And that was a lot of money when the average skilled laborer at the time was making just around $500 a year. But most players made between $75 and $150 a month. Now, some had bonuses worked into their contracts based upon performance, but most didn't. And as probably guessed, nearly all of the players had to have some sort of off-season or secondary job. The umpires didn't have it much better at this time. They made $140 a month in the American Association, and believe it or not, in the National League, they only made $5 a game. And there was only one umpire on the field to make all the calls at every base. Now, this umpire, he, of course, he positioned himself behind the catcher at home plate. And he had the right to ask spectators about what they saw when making their call. And, of course, with only one umpire who had to watch the ball in play... Base runners and infielders who were out of line of sight would constantly cheat. Runners cutting corners and missing third base on their way to home, unless, of course, the third baseman stuck his foot out and was able to trip him up on his way there. Oh, and the team 
that batted in the bottom of the inning was determined by a coin flip, not who was the home team. It really was the wild, wild west of baseball, and especially the American Association in, the, in that league's inaugural season of 1882. William Ambrose Hulbert, and I mentioned him last week, he was the president of the Establishment National League, and he was so against the American Association, he banned his teams in the National League from playing it, the American Association teams in exhibition games, it's, excuse me, etc., etc. Well, Hulbert died in April of 82, just a few weeks before both leagues opened play. And after his death... Seeing the crowds that the American Association was pulling in, the National League team owners voted to open up exhibition play against the American Association teams, especially if the games were played at the Association's home parks so they could get a piece of that beer and whiskey action. The American Association ballparks were drawing record crowds, especially on Sundays. Nothing like it had ever been seen. Of course, with these hard-drinking, boisterous, working-class crowds, there came problems with mainly rowdiness, a few fights maybe. But there's also this great air of excitement, cheering, fanaticism, which made the atmosphere much, much more exciting in the American Association than it was over in the National League. And the beer sales were bringing in money. We kind of think of baseball today as being kind of staid and pastoral um, in comparison to, say, football, hockey, or, uh, or basketball. But in the late 19th century, it was anything but. And as for a fellow Missourian Mark Twain once said, a fan of the game himself, he was, the very symbol, the outward and visible expression of the drive and push and rush and struggle of the raging, tearing, booming 19th century. The 1882 American Association season had no pennant race to speak of. The Cincinnati Reds well outpaced everyone else to finish 13 games ahead of second-place Louisville. But what a successful season at the gates. Five of the six American Association teams outdrew the National League's highest attended team, the Chicago White Stockings, who today, remember, are the Cubs. Anyway, And Chicago, in the National League, had three times as many paid spectators as any other National League club. And what's that mean? Well, the American Association was flush with cha-ching, courtesy of Herr Lager Beer and John Barleycorn, and they were ready to go steal some of the best National League players for the 1883 season. Knowing that they were now in the driver's seat at the end of 1882, the association banned all lucrative postseason exhibition games with the National League, a turnabout from the previous year. But... The Reds' ownership did an end-around on this band. The club discharged all of their players from their contracts at the end of the season, and then the players, quote-unquote, formed up an independent ball club and scheduled a series 
against three National League teams, including the league champion Chicago White Stockings. Now, in the first game of a two-game set between the two champions, the Reds and the White Sox, the Reds beat the heavily favored Chicago team 4-0. to nil. Now, the second game, the Reds played well enough, but they lost 2 to nothing against the Chicago team. Regardless, an association club beating the champion National League club in one game was completely unbelievable at the time. And it was just a mark of things to come. At the association's winter meetings, only two of the six clubs voted for sanctions against the Reds for doing an end-around on the ban against playing the National League, including owner of the Browns, Chris Von der Ahe, who hated the National League with a passion that is only known in a German temper. Now, that name, Chris Von der Ahe, I, I still haven't been able to find out how to pronounce that. I just went to... Uh, a pronunciation website, and that's on German, and that's what it said to pronounce it. I don't think it's right, but that's what I got, and that's what I'm going with. Anyway, but the rest of the team said, well, bygones will be bygones, and the owners knew that they had to stay together if they were going to beat the National League in the upcoming player sweepstakes. See, there was no longer any agreement at all between the two leagues about recognizing contracts. President Holbert, before he died, had torn any thinking of that up. So the association was ready to spend money to get some of the best talent they could from the rival league. Now, additionally at the meeting, two new teams were added to the association, Columbus, Ohio, which would make a great regional rival for Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and Louisville, and the New York Metropolitans. Now, the schedules were drawn up, and each team would play an additional 18 games on the season from the season before, which meant more money, and with the season beginning in early May and ending in the last week of September. Von der Ahe was quite proud of the financial results of 1882 season, but he couldn't hide his disappointment and embarrassment about the Browns' finish in the standings. Fifth place, 18 games back of first, and six games under 500. Now, he knew the first thing he had to do was hire a manager that knew what he was doing. Now, at the time, team hierarchy was a little different than it is today. See, at the top, you had the owner, just as you do today, or the president, who is the representative of the owner or the ownership group. Now, below the owner or president, they went straight to a manager. They bypassed the, the whole idea of a general manager. The manager and the general manager were the same guy and the manager. Now, some teams had player managers, but if the manager wasn't a player, the team usually had a field captain. And managers who weren't players wore suits, either in the dugouts, if they sat in the dugout, but most sat in the stands. Now, in 1882, the Browns were led on the field by player manager named Ned Cuthbert, the guy who had talked Von der Eye into buying the broken-down Browns club in the first place in 1880. 
Now, Cuthbert was well past his prime, and he tended to play his friends and drinking buddies rather than the best possible player on the team at, at the positions. And so, von der Eye was told by a sports writer from the Missouri Republican newspaper, and the guy wanted the managerial position himself, and so he started talking about how badly Cuthbert was doing at running the team. But van der Eye, he went after a fellow who he knew had been very successful as the manager of the Dubuque Rabbits in the minor Northwestern League. An Irishman who had come over on the boat as an infant at the end of the potato famine named Ted Sullivan. How Timothy Paul Ted Sullivan wound up in the Midwest of the United States is one of those many mysteries that came out of the Irish diaspora in the mid-19th century. Immigration records before Ellis Island and the establishment of the Bureau of Immigration in 1891 saw a lot of people who arrived in America and, well, their records just were lost. Some sources say that Sullivan and his family, they settled in St. Louis where he played baseball at St. Louis University. But having a better mind for the game and an excellent eye for talent that well exceeded his playing ability, he first scouted for other teams before he ended up managing ball clubs himself. First, he was a manager of an independent team in Milwaukee before he went to the Dubuque Club in Iowa. Now, while scouting at St. Mary's College in Kansas, Sullivan came across a second-generation Irish-American first baseman named Charles Comiskey. Sullivan signed young Charlie as a player, and he took him along when he went to Milwaukee and Dubuque as the manager. In 1881, the Dubuque team came to St. Louis to play an exhibition game against the then-independent St. Louis Browns at Sportsman's Park. For Chris Vonderahe, the player who stood out was the tall, ranging first baseman, Charlie Comiskey. Comiskey played the base differently than anyone else at that time. The style in that day was to hug the bag. Going to the origins of baseball, when a foul ball in the infield that didn't go past the bag and then went foul was still considered fair. So first baseman had to stay close to the base end of the bag to guard against both fair and foul territory balls, especially those who were bunted. But that rule changed in 1877, and with Sullivan's coaching, Comiskey completely changed the way the position was played, going to a manner of play as it is today, playing behind the bag and off the line, and going after ground balls that were hit in the hole between first and second. Now, when the game was over, von der Eye, on the advice of Cuthbert, offered Comiskey $75 a month to play for St. Louis, which was actually much less than Comiskey was making playing ball for Sullivan when you combined it with his second job selling newspapers at the Dubuque train depot. But Sullivan, always with his best intentions of his young protege at heart, told him, take the offer. Ah, your tide has come in, boy. You won't be discovered playing in Dubuque. St. Louis is the proper market to show your goods. Comiskey signed with the Browns, and it paid off. 
On his first payday, Vonderahe was so happy with his acquisition. I need a drink. That he handed the young man $125, a $50 bonus from what was promised. And from that point on, Charlie Comiskey made more money every year he was involved in professional baseball. And it was Comiskey who told Vonder Ihe how good Sullivan was in baseball. An eye for talent, knowledge of the game unsurpassed among his peers. Vonder Ihe made an offer to Sullivan in September of 1882, before the season was even over, to be the manager of the Browns in 1883. The German immigrant saloon keeper told the Irish immigrant baseball man that he wanted him to start immediately to begin building for the next season. Sullivan said yes. But Sullivan had some trepidation before he signed. See, Chris Vonderaye had a reputation of being a micromanager who angered easily if things were not going as he expected. It was said that he ordered his managers and players to do things or he would suspend or release them outright from their contracts, even though the German admitted publicly that he knew very little about the game of baseball. But he had smooth talked to Sullivan, saying he would give him whatever resources he needed to build a championship club. And Sullivan could tell this German had passion. Von der Eye told Sullivan, You are the Moses to take St. Louis out of the wilderness. And as soon as the season was over, Sullivan took to building a team for der boss president, as the St. Louis press had begun to call Von der Eye. Sullivan signed the best talent he could find and lure away from the National League clubs. He signed the league's best catcher, two great defensive outfielders, and one of the best infielders to ever be found in 19th century baseball. He'd also signed two pitchers and a third baseman from National League teams, but they were lured back to their original clubs with better offers. He acquired another top-notch yet arrogant pitcher with a blistering fastball and a perplexing curve named Tony Mullane, also a native Irishman, in a trade for cash with Louisville. Now, it seemed the Kentucky crowds did not appreciate the Gaelic hurler's ego and playing style. Mullane may had no qualms about knocking batters on their asses if he thought they were getting too good of a look at his strikes. He was a mean competitor, and he was one of the best pitchers out there in the American Association. So, while the manager Sullivan was building his ball club, their boss president was expanding the ballpark, adding more seats, another deck on the grandstand, which, by the way, was built quickly and probably not as well as it should have been. And after a particularly large crowd in the middle of the season and the grandstand started to sway, Vonder Hay had to hire an architect and an engineer to come while the team was on a road trip and bolster the structure. Now, the bleachers in the left field where spectators had roasted the previous season in the St. Louis Sun were covered with an awning. The dirt walkways that turned into mud soup when it rained, they well, these were raised and they were graveled over. 
There were four additional ticket booths added to avoid bottlenecks of spectators waiting to get in on big game days. Now, an immense blackboard was erected in the outfield where the results by telegraph from out-of-town games would be posted. The press box was enclosed so reporters wouldn't be bothered by cranks and other fanatics or spectators wandering around. And the players' dressing room, as it was called at the time, not the locker room, it was equipped with individual compartments for each player where he could hang his clothing, uniform, and equipment. A novelty at the time when most dressing rooms simply had pegs or hooks on the wall. Von der Eye also added another novelty for the time, a telephone installed at the club's offices so fans could come by when the team was on the road and instantly know what the out-of-town score was. He hired a professional groundskeeper, one of the first ever in organized baseball, to keep the field in the best condition possible. But what he was most interested in were more concession stands and more beer sales, which was paying for it all. Von der Eihe had built baseball heaven in St. Louis almost 100 years before anybody had ever heard of Field of Dreams. When the team played their first exhibition game on April 1st of 1883, it was a cold, windy, blustery day with fans in the stands wrapped up in their winter coats. And they saw Jumbo McGinnis throw a one-hit shutout against the local Grand Avenue Baseball Club. But it was the attitude of the team that impressed the fans and the sports writers the most. Sullivan did not sit in the dugout. He remained in the stands, and he gave his trusted friend and newly acquired center fielder, Tom Loftus, the duty of team captain. Loftus chattered away, giving instructions to his players from the top of the dugout step when they were at bat or from his position in center when they were on defense, something that Ned Cuthbert, the previous field leader, never did. The team played aggressively, taking the extra base, running everything out head down as fast as they could, forcing errors, working the count, jumping on the first pitch. It was an exciting brand of baseball, even if it was just a preseason game. Von der Eihe was so excited about the upcoming season that three days later, on April 4th, he presented Sullivan with a gold watch engraved with the Irishman's name. A wave of fondness overcame Sullivan for his boisterous boss, and that watch represented a token of respect and appreciation, and Sullivan hoped he wouldn't let their boss president down. But it wasn't only the Browns in St. Louis that had great expectations. The Athletics in Philadelphia and the Reds had not slept through the winter either. The New York team had plenty of cash behind it as well, and the Louisville club had some of the best players in the league. Now, each team had 96 games ahead of them to prove their merit, and they were about to start one of the most exciting seasons ever in the history of the sport. I'm ready for another lining kugel. The St. Louis Club opened the season on May 1st against their rivals in Cincinnati. Cheers. 
In the days before radio, crowds gathered around various ball clubs' headquarters and newspaper offices, where runners would run from the telegraph office to post scores on chalkboards so the fans could see how the team was doing. But now, the Browns had a telephone, and the news was almost instantaneous as things happened, just as long as there was a telephone near the out-of-town ballpark. And fans surrounded the Browns' offices, waiting to hear how this first game was going. But it didn't go well. The first series in Cincinnati was not what was hoped for. The Reds swept the Browns in three games by the scores of 5-6, to 1-12, to 12, and 2-3. to three. And nobody was more upset than their boss president, who by telegraph began ordering Sullivan to make changes in the lineup in the next series in Columbus. Sullivan he was always an independent man when it came to ball. He ignored the orders, knowing that if he succumbed to Von der Eihe's request, it would never end. Von der Eihe threatened to release the players he wanted benched from their contracts, and this was just the beginning of a season-long feud between the German saloon keeper and the Irish manager. You tell me, which is stronger, German temper or Irish resolve? That's also known as hard-headedness. It's bad when you have both, trust me. The second series in Columbus saw the Browns drop two of three. The following series in Louisville, St. Louis righted the ship and took two of three from the Eclipse team, and then returning for the home opener against Columbus on May 19th. Now, Sullivan's team, they were straightening things out. They won four straight, sweeping the Columbus squad in three and winning the first of their home series against Louisville. But then they lost the next two games against Louisville in St. Louis. But after that, they had a remarkable run. The Browns won 14 of the next 17 series. They only lost two series, and they tied one. Between May 29th and August 31st, the St. Louis Brown Stockings won 46 games while only losing 16. That's 30 more games than they lost. With five series sweeps in that while not being swept at all in the two series that they lost. It's a great run. And... That included taking three out of four games from the first-place athletics in Philadelphia in the middle of June. Von der Eihe was so excited, and he awarded every player on the team a box of top-grade cigars after they beat Philadelphia. But the German, he admitted he never was a true baseball man, He expected his team, who he had invested money in, to win every game. Which in baseball, as any, any of you might know out there, even the best team in the league is going to lose at least one game to the worst team. But even their boss, he had to look past these few losses at the pile of wins. And the 11,000 seats in Sportsman's Park were nearly filled to capacity with every home game. And on Sundays, another 5,000 standing room attendees also 
were squeezed in to see their Browns and to buy their boss president's beer. Yet the German, he couldn't keep his nose out of the club's on-field business. When he traveled with the team, he did bed checks, and he fined players for not being in their rooms at the curfew. He, t- he told Sullivan who he should play on the field and who he should sit. He fined players who were caught out on an aggressive base running play. He fined players for not scoring. He fined players for making errors. He signed players without consulting with his manager. And Sullivan's patient, patience, I should say, was running out. He had put this team in a position to win it all, and Von der Eihe was trying to figure out a way to fuck it all up. On August 27th, with 21 games left to play, the Browns were in first place, a half game up on the Athletics. Now, despite his players being a bunch of carousers and boozers, and his boss being an incessant pain in the ass, Sullivan had held the team together, and he felt like, barring any injuries, they should win the season. Their pitchers were all healthy, and that wasn't the case with second-place Philadelphia and third-place Cincinnati. On August 29th, with St. Louis losing 3 to nothing to New York, in New York, at the old polo grounds, their boss president ordered Sullivan to take the pitcher out of the game and put the pitcher from the previous day in because he was better. Sullivan shook his head and laughed. He refused, knowing that if he didn't rest his number one starter, the guy that had won the game before, and this is in the days before bullpens, they'd have no chance of winning the game the next day. Now that night, Von der Eihe and Sullivan had it out, both accusing the other of wrecking what each had built. And Sullivan he pulled the gold watch from his pocket and while we don't know what the exact conversation went like it probably had something to do with the watch the job and the boss's rectum Sullivan quit he'd had enough the next morning he was on a train headed back to St. Louis the next morning Fonderaje appointed Charlie Comiskey as player manager And then, after the boss president had cooled down, he telegraphed St. Louis with an apology to Ted Sullivan and offered him the job back. Sullivan didn't even reply to the telegraph. He was done with Chris Vonderahe. Now, Charlie Comiskey did a good job over the next month. As a, excuse me, as a rookie player manager, he was respected by his teammates. And the Browns went a respectable 12-7. and They even had a head-to-head matchup with the Athletics on the next-to-last series of the season in St. Louis. But the Athletics took two out of the three there, giving Philadelphia a three-game lead going into the last week of the season. The Athletics had four games left in Louisville, while the Browns had three left at home against Pittsburgh. St. Louis still had a chance, but they had to win all three games, and the Athletics had to lose all four of theirs. The Browns did their part, 
They swept the Alleghenies, but the Athletics hung on, and on the second-to-last day of the season, they won one of the four games, and they took the pennant with one game left to spare. There had never been a pennant race so exciting before 1883. Five of the association's eight teams played above 500 baseball. There were three teams in the race coming down to the last two weeks of the season, St. Louis, Philadelphia, and Cincinnati. The attendance figures for that summer were unprecedented, with Philadelphia, the second largest city in America at the time, drawing over 300,000 in attendance alone. And with the American Association's Sunday games and beer and whiskey sales, baseball had never been more popular with more people than it was at that moment. Now, two seasons later, the Browns began a run of winning four American Association championships in a row under the managerial leadership of Charlie Comiskey. Von der Eyhe, their boss president, had learned his lesson, and he let the baseball man run the game, and he would count the money. In 1891, another Rebel League emerged, the Players League. It was made of disgruntled players from both the American Association and the National League. Now, it only lasted one season, but it did enough damage, it had pulled enough players, that it caused the National League and the American Association to join together under the name National League in 1892, with four teams from the American Association coming over to the National League. And those four teams are still in the National League today. The Brooklyn Atlantics, who became the Dodgers, they are now in L.A., of course, the Pittsburgh Alleghenies, who became the Pirates, the Cincinnati Reds, of course, and the St. Louis Browns, who would eventually become the Cardinals. The league, the National League decided, since they already had the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, one of their original teams, the Athletics were out. They could not join the National League. They didn't want two teams in the same city. And so... The Philadelphia Th Athletics of the American Association folded in 1890. Charlie Comiskey, having won four championships for the St. Louis Browns, he left his playing days behind him in 1894, and he bought the St. Paul, Minnesota Club in the Western League. In 1900, he moved the team to his hometown on the south side of Chicago, and the next year, the Western League became the new American League. Comiskey called his team the White Stockings. And the name that had been used by the National League Club had been abandoned, and they had taken the name the Colts. And the Chicago National League Club, now it played its, its games on the west side of town. Now, a couple of years later, that team would change their name again to the Cubs. And in 1914... They moved into their brand new ballpark on the north side at the corner of Addison and Clark, where that team still plays its games today. With the creation of the new American League, St. Louis got a second team in 1901, took the name the Browns, 
which had been abandoned by the original Brown Stockings, who had moved out of Sportsman's Park in 1892 for the new League Park. And the team changed their colors from brown to red in 1900, and that's when they started to be called the Cardinals. Philadelphia got another athletics team in the American League, and it shared the city with the National League Phillies till the athletics moved to Kansas City in the 1950s, and then the athletics moved to Oakland in the 1960s, where they remain today. Nearly all of the teams in the National League, after the joining of the association clubs in 1892, adopted beer sales. It became too big of a revenue stream for the clubs to ignore. And by the time the American League came along nine years later, it was just completely expected you're going to sell beer at the ballpark. Sunday games, however, were a little slower in coming to some cities. See, after the dissolution of the American Association, some cities passed ordinances against Sunday baseball. Cleveland, Washington, and Detroit didn't have Sunday ball until 1918, and New York followed the the next year. Boston didn't allow Sunday baseball until 1921, and the last city to allow the game to be played on Sunday was, ironically enough, Philadelphia in 1934, where the athletics had been part of the American Association, which introduced beer sales and Sunday games to baseball in 1882. Prohibition took beer away from baseball for 13 seasons, but when it was over, the marriage between beer and baseball came back stronger than ever. The Yankees' ownership in the 20s and 30s, they owned a brewery, but it was in the 1950s that Ballantines became the official beer of the New York Yankees. Of course, around here, we all know of Gussie Bush, who bought the Cardinals in 1953, and the connection between Anheuser-Busch and St. Louis baseball, while no longer owned by the brewery, is still very strong. The Gunther Brewing Company bought the American League St. Louis Browns in 1954 and moved the team to Baltimore, where they became the Orioles. And they sold lots of Gunther Brewing's National Bohemian Beer. Knickerbocker beer is what was drank at the New York Giants games at the polo grounds. And while if you moved across town, you'd drink Schaefer when you went across the river to see the Dodgers in Brooklyn at Ebbets Field. The Kansas City Athletics were sponsored by Schlitz in the 1950s. Miller Brewing has always had a strong connection in Milwaukee, both with the Braves in the 1950s and later the Brewers, who happened to play in Miller Park. When the Twins emerged in Minnesota in 1961, Hams, the beer of sky blue waters, was their number one sponsor. Narragansett Beer of New England sponsored the Red Sox. Carling sponsored the Cleveland Indians. Stroh Brewing Company was the beer of the Detroit Tigers. And Falstaff, well, Falstaff of Limp Brewing in St. Louis was the beer of the Los Angeles Angels and the San Francisco Giants in the 1960s. 
Pittsburgh had Iron City Beer, and Cincinnati had Hootapole Brewing, I hope I'm saying that right, in the 50s and 60s. And when the Mets came to New York in 1962, Gold Beer was the beer to be quaffed first at the Polo Grounds and then at Shea Stadium. And the only beer to drink at Wrigley Field in the late 70s and the 1980s was Heilemann's Old Style from La Crosse, Wisconsin. The Labatt's Brewing Company in Toronto were the original owners of the Blue Jays. And of course, if you go to see the Colorado Rockies, you'll have to have a Coors at Coors Field. Most of the regional breweries are all but gone. And the big breweries have pushed them out. But one thing now is that all of the craft breweries are now getting space at the ballparks. And the next time you go out to the ball game and you enjoy a cold brew, remember a German immigrant saloon keeper who bought a baseball team, the St. Louis Browns and the American Association in the great pennant race of 1883, when beer and baseball came together on the west side of St. Louis, as well as along the banks of the Ohio River in Cincinnati. And with that, we have the American pastime, beer and baseball. History episode 21 was written and produced by me, Alan Tapman. Technical director of history is Brian McGeorge. History, the story of alcohol is a wild Irish production, all rights reserved, and recorded at River's Edge Studios and Patty Malone's Irish Pub in Jefferson City. To learn more about our local pub, find us on Facebook at Patty Malone's Irish Pub. And this week's phrase for you podcast listeners and patrons is, I've got the time if you've got the beer. Tell your server or bartender that phrase and get a special off of any 20-ounce draft beer at the pub. That's this Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday this week, because I'm a day late getting the recording out. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, April 12th, 13th, 14th, between 3 and 9 p.m. I've got the time if you've got the beer. That's your phrase. Only one special per person per day, and this offer is not valid to anyone under the age of 21. And a reminder, we're going to do a live recording of history at Patty Malone's on Saturday, April 22nd, to mark the first six months of us bringing history to you. Episode 23, which is in two weeks. And the show is going to be questions, mostly, submitted by you, the listeners. And we'll probably have some special guest interviews there. And that's Saturday, April 22nd at Patty Malone's Pub. We'll start the show sometime around 9 or shortly thereafter. Hope to see as many of you that can possibly make it. And send me your questions for the broadcast to cheers at history.com. I'll probably tell a few stories as well. It'll be a great night and a lot of fun at the pub. And another thing, remember, if you haven't signed up yet, we're having another history happening. In conjunction with the pub and Fectal Beverage, we're inviting you to our first ever Mothers, Sisters, Brothers, and Baseball Outing, Sunday, May 21st, 
We're off for a tour of Mother's Brewing in Springfield, Missouri, and then we'll take in a game at Hammond Field to see the Springfield Cardinals versus Northwest Arkansas. This package includes coach transportation, excuse me, from Patty Malone's to Springfield and back, complimentary beverages on the coach, personal guided tour of Mother's Brewing with beer samples and lunch at the brewery. Dugout box tickets are better at Hammond Field. Box supper on the coach back to JCMO. The entire day of great fun, only $59 per person, but here's the deal. If you're already signed up as a Patreon patron, you'll get an additional discount. That is 10% off. Well, let's make it 10% plus a dime. You'll get $6 off. It'll be only $53 for you that are Patreon patrons. That's Sunday, May 21st, only 50 seats, and they're selling fast, so move fast. To reserve your tickets, email me at cheers at history.com. Get in touch with me uh, through uh, Facebook Messenger, or if you've got my phone number, send me a text. Please follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash history. Please like and share the post about the episodes as they come out each week. And thanks to everyone who shared last week's notifications. That's the best way we can get the word out to people. And if you've got a friend that's a history nerd like me, or he likes, or she likes alcohol like I do, or maybe they're a podcast listener, tell them about history. It's greatly appreciated. Find us on Twitter at history. And if you're a fan of the show and you're so moved, a glowing review on iTunes, a like on SoundCloud or Stitcher would be fantastic. Thank you so much. Any questions or show ideas, and believe me, I always can use some ideas, send me an email to cheers at history.com. You can find more information about the podcast on our website and blog, www.history.com, as well as links to connect on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, though you don't need to know that. You're already listening. Big shout out to our patrons. You guys are the best. Thanks for helping us make this happen. Oh, and I couldn't do it without you. You don't know how much we appreciate you helping us to offset podcast fees, time that we spend doing this, software cost, etc., etc. And if you'd like to be a supporting patron, and you're not, it's really easy. Go to the website in the upper right-hand corner of the page, click on support. There you'll find out how to become a monthly contributor to the program for as little as the cost of a draft of domestic beer. That's a 20-ounce draft, too. You'll be helping us to offset web hosting, podcast platform fees, as well as underwriting our expenses related to recording, editing software, and time spent researching, writing, recording, editing, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm rambling. Thanks again. And any and all support is so greatly appreciated. The theme music for history is provided by Ben Sound. Do you need music for a project? Then go to www.bensound.com and see what solutions they might have for you. That's B-E-N-S-O-U-N-D.com. This week's episode was brought to you in part by Fectal Beverage, your community craft beer specialty beer distributor. And again... To all of you for listening, thanks so much. I promise I'll keep trying to get better. Have a great week. Be safe. Drink responsibly. Don't drink and drive. 
And until next week, if I don't see you at the pub, I'll see you right here on the podcast. And of course, Merrily, you know I love you. You're the best. You are the measure of my dreams. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.